0: This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Israel is not a white state. It's a Jewish state in our indigenous homeland, the land of Israel. And why do people hate Israel? Well, they hate Israel because it's Jewish. And listen, we can have conversations about Israeli policy, but people who hate Israel are not talking about policy. They hate Israel. They hate its inherent characteristics. And what is that characteristic? It's Jewishness.
1: Ben M. Freeman is part of a new generation in our Jewish community who proclaim we won't keep our heads we won't down. Keep our heads we won't down. We won't be told who we are and how we should be. We should be, we should be. We will, 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 will speak up about who we are in the non-Jewish world.
2: For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's so weird because
0: there's a total disconnect. It is. Their perceptions of us have absolutely nothing to do with our reality. And that is why we have to have pride, because sometimes we absorb their perceptions of our identities and then we internalise their anti-Jewishness. Because we do, we absorb their perceptions of ourselves. We have to say, no, this is your idea, this is your perception, it is false, it is a libel, it's a fantasy, and it has nothing to do with our reality.
1: This is our pride, Jewish pride. And that word pride is integral to his work too.
0: What I'm doing is showing, actually, you can be a proud Jew, you can be a super proud Jew and still be a gay man, and those identities can coexist without necessarily, you know, having them being challenged by one another.
1: And if you're a traditional or orthodox Jew, don't just park this conversation. This isn't a liberal or progressive thing. This is a Jewish thing. Jewish Pride is the title of Ben's book, and as with many modern titles... There's also an additional byline, rebuilding a people.
0: We're a minority. We're always going to be a minority. And there is a power dynamic there. So we need to understand the rules of engagement. One of them being that this is a non-Jewish problem that impacts us. But we're going to love ourselves regardless and we're not going to stop fighting. to, so at the very least, keep it at bay.
1: So often opinions are thrown around like luxury items. It has no impact on those who declare those opinions, but for the targets of them, it can be really damaging. Think about the last time you heard a slur about Zionism.
0: Non-Jewish perceptions on Zionism are illegitimate. It's a Jewish concept created by Jews, for Jews, rooted in Jewish identity. It's really Zionism is one of the most important Jewish concept. So only Jews get to define it. And we have to stand firm and we have to defend ourselves and say, we're not going to allow you to make it something luxury. Because actually for us, it's not. It is our movement of self-determination to return us to our indigenous land, which we were ethnically cleansed from. And then we spent the next 2000 years experiencing multiple genocides, ethnic cleansings, enslavements, legal oppressions. This is not luxury. This is our lives.
1: You'll be arrested by Ben's openness, frankness, and the personal journey he's been on to consolidate being Jewish and gay at the same time, and the lessons for all of us. It also gives me a wonderful opportunity to play audio clips from previous episodes with the wisdom of Gen Mazik, Lynn Julius, and Michael Oren. Scroll back and listen to those great episodes on other aspects and perspectives of Jewish life and history. Subscribe now. Tell your friends. Now. Author. Scholar and Glaswegian Jew, among many other identities, this is Ben M. Freeman.
2: This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen, here's Johnny.
1: Ben M. Freeman, a warm welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Johnny. I'm really excited to speak to you
1: today. Well, congratulations to you on a vibrant, vivid book and you make accessible nuance after nuance of complex ideas how many times did you have to sleep on it and rewrite some of the key phrases
0: you know it's writing a book is really an iterative process and the the first draft in some ways doesn't necessarily bear that much resemblance to what actually came out because you go through so many different iterations of it and absolutely you write something you go away, you think about it, you sleep on it, you talk to people, and then you realise that your perspective is changing, your perspective has evolved. Also, the more research you do, the, the deeper your understanding of the topic. So absolutely, this was really a... I mean, it wasn't a very long process. I think I wrote the first draft in about nine months, but I worked on it pretty intensely. So yeah, I mean, that was a very... It was very intense process with constant revisions. But I think that's really what you have to do when you're writing this kind of book.
1: Indeed, and it is very much a snapshot of the time that we're living in. Can we start with some house rules on the term LGBTQ+. plus? I've now heard the term LGB as well. What are we going with and why? And is the T sort of being knocked on the head JK Rowling style? Where, where, where does this all fit together now?
0: So LGBTQ+, plus is an umbrella term, and actually queer which is the Q in LGBTQ+, is also another umbrella term. So it can be a little confusing. So L stands for lesbian, G stands for gay, B stands for bisexual, T stands for trans, Q stands for queer, and then there's a plus because there's other sexual orientations that are not included in the acronym, basically because, you know, at some point we have to stop adding letters because it does become a bit ludicrous. But we also <laughs> don't want to stop, we don't want to not represent people because there's different experiences that have to be represented. And I think that every part of the community, though our experiences are different, you know, I'm a gay man, I'm cis, I'm not trans, that means I can't necessarily speak to the trans experience, but it's still an important part of the community. And I know there's great big conversations happening now, but I like to stay out of those.
1: (laughs) I'm glad. And as a non-pronoun geezer, I must tell you this. Am I cis? What am I in that language? So you would be
0: cis, and cis just means that you identify with the I guess, gender identity, you were assigned at birth. So right. I, you were you were assigned male at birth and you identified as a man. That's that's how I also identify. Um, trans is when you have a different gender identity to the one that you were assigned at birth.
1: You know, here we are, two Jews together. Does Hashem assign us this? Or is it humanity?
0: I, that's a really good question. <laughs> I. That's a really, I mean, I don't know. That's a really great question. I think that... It's society. I think that society has traditionally operated on a gender binary and gender. We're talking about identity, right? We're not necessarily even talking about biological sex. We're talking about how people express themselves, how people feel about themselves. And we have kind of operated on a binary. And there's clearly people who don't fit into that, even if the majority do. So I guess what we have to try and do is, you know, respect all communities and respect communities or, or individuals who don't necessarily fit into the binary but also not to raise the fact that many people do
1: now the first thing that struck me about the title jewish pride is that it's a double entendre it's a call on the surface for everyone to reaffirm their identity as a as a positive but also of an individual's uh, one's own identity within that uh it's it's a dog whistle of a kind pride which is the uh which is the term for uh for marches and and for, for days and weekends it's uh a, a, a little reference to your own sexuality, actually.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And, and the book, or the journey towards the book, was really born from my journey towards LGBTQ plus pride. And you're absolutely right when you say it's both a collective and an individual thing. Each of us are going to find different things about our Jewishness that makes us proud. We're all going to find different things about our Jewishness that relate to us as individuals. You know, I wear a kippah every day, but I don't necessarily... I, I don't keep kosher. Um So, you know, I wrote a book about Jewish pride, but my partner isn't Jewish. Um, So there's the individual element. But then there is the collective, because as you say, we're two Jews sitting here. And yes, we're both from the UK, but you're living in London, I believe, and I'm living in Hong Kong. And we have come together because we're Jewish. And there is this collective identity and we are one people. You know, they say, and that's really true. So it's both a collective and an individual experience and journey
1: so of course we all have different identities as well um and we all learn from them so there is a large part of this book particularly in the introduction where you collect lessons and themes learned from your additional identity of being gay
0: absolutely yes so as i said that was the starting point for me because i have a framework for this journey you know and i and i really don't believe this book could have been written in the same way by a heterosexual jew simply because I've already been on a journey. I had to go through a journey to pride. I had to deal with internalized homophobia. I had to do the work. So that framework has given me really practical lessons on how to kind of build this movement in the Jewish world because it has to be practical. It can't just be theoretical. You know, we can sit around and talk about, oh, we're proud of being Jewish, great. What does that look like? How do we spread it? How do we empower, inspire and educate other Jews? So absolutely, it was really about drawing lessons and I think that it was really important because I experienced the hypocrisy of the world at, at, in, you know, in one moment. On one hand, when I tell people I'm gay, they say to me, what are your pronouns? Are you gay? Are you queer? Are you LGBTQ plus? When I tell people I'm Jewish, and when I try to define my Jewish identity, I'm immediately told what it means to be a Jew, often by non-Jewish people and even by Jews. But these Jews are clearly basing their perspectives on Jewish identity, on non-Jewish ideas. So I experienced that hypocrisy. And that to me was something really powerful because it's not right, it's not fair.
1: And this now brings us on to the second part of the title of your book. It's, this is like studying the Tanya. We're going through every syllable. And we're only we're, we're on the cover of the book so far. <laughs> Rebuild. Sure, I promise you this podcast will be less than 30 hours. I promise you. Now, rebuilding a people is also part of the title. What does that mean in the early part of the 21st century to the diaspora and indeed to the 7 million Jews in Israel?
0: I love that you're asking this because I have done about 100 interviews and events since February when the book first came out. And you're the first person to break down the title in this way. And the title was really... Um, it was chosen really thoughtfully. I wanted to imply something with action, hence the the rebuilding. But the reason it was not building and instead it was rebuilding was because we are a 4,000-year-old culture and civilization, and there have been Jewish pride movements in different forms throughout those 4,000 years, right? You know, you could talk about the the Maccabees, you could talk about Bar Kokhba, you could talk about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprisers, and many, many in between. So I didn't want to be so arrogant as to say, this is the first Jewish pride movement ever. It's why I describe it as a modern jewish pride movement and then again it was we have the rebuilding so that's the action and it's also in reference and kind of plays homage to the past but what are we at first i considered rebuilding a nation But that was a little problematic because people wouldn't necessarily understand that I didn't necessarily mean the state of Israel. And why I'm a Zionist um, and I love Israel, I also want to speak to the diasporic experience. And it's okay. well, it wouldn't be rebuilding a religion because we're not just a religious group. And I thought that people was really kind of a really great descriptor of what we are. We are a people, we are an ethnicity, we're a culture, a civilization, a nation. And I think people encapsulate, encapsulates that. And part of the book, part of the message is a rejection of non-Jewish ideas of what it means to be a Jew and a reinforcement, a reclaiming of Jewish identity and really reinforcing and reclaiming the notion that we are a people, we're not just a religious group, which is really a Christian, European and American idea of Jewish identity.
1: Uh, The prologue starts with a familiar conversation. For those of us lucky to have been born in the latter half of the 20th century, we lived in a post-Holocaust halo of Jewish emancipation, recognition, this state of Israel's birth, Jews living freely around the world to this day, but the non-Jewish world, you say, is, quotes, poisoned by anti-Semitism. What to do, Ben?
0: I think that there's two different conversations. The first is, what are we going to do? and what we're going to do is build a Jewish pride movement. We're going to love ourselves regardless of what the non-Jewish world says about us. We're going to define our identities in spite of how they define our identities and we're going to fundamentally understand that we are allowed, permitted, encouraged to advocate for ourselves because we are told and we also tell ourselves this, keep your head down, don't say anything, just get on with it and that is absurd. It's absurd that you know we are the most continuously persecuted people in the history of mankind and i don't say that with any pride it's just a historical fact it's not like i'm trying to diminish other you know experiences of prejudice it's just if you look at the long history of persecution ours has lasted the longest and has been the most continuous in terms of minority groups so it's absurd that we would not advocate for ourselves so we more than anyone should advocate for ourselves and that is where we kind of move on to the second part of this answer the second conversation is we will advocate for ourselves. We're going to dialogue. We're going to share our experiences. We're not going to shut up, which was one of the most amazing things that the British Jewish community during Corbyn, right, was that we didn't shut up even though they tried to force us to be quiet. We, we refused. But ultimately, we also have to understand that Jew hate is not a Jewish problem. It's a non-Jewish problem that impacts Jews. So while we are going to advocate for ourselves, dialogue, share our experiences, there's not any. There's not a huge amount more than that that we can do. We want to promote allyship, but really the work needs to be done by the non-Jewish world. And what Jewish Pride attempts to do is mitigate the shame and oppression they impose onto us. But, you know, it's not a particularly cheery thought, but if we wanted to, if we could stop it, we would have done. We're a tiny minority operating in the world. Even though we have a country now, it's still one Jewish country out of, you know, over 100. So... We're a minority. We're always going to be a minority and there is a power dynamic there. So we need to understand the rules of engagement, one of them being that this is a non-Jewish problem that impacts us, but we're going to love ourselves regardless and we're not going to stop fighting. So at the very least, keep it at bay.
1: And there's that term which you see everywhere. And again, a lot of nouns and, and proper nouns and verbs and adverbs have become dog whistles. The word luxury has been ruined, hasn't it? The idea of luxury communism and zionism has become like the new apartheid sort of struggle you know it's all fine and dandy just to sort of talk but it impacts on people like us in in real terms these are luxury items where they're just throwaway lines for people in the west who've got central heating all the food they can have all the clothes they can uh, they can enjoy and even have neighbors who are jewish that they may or may not get on with um who wear the same clothes and do the same things Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in, in Israel. Um, for instance, there, there is a, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the debts that the country needs call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, known to some of the woke revolution, where there's kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university from your corporation uh, from uh, journalists and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism so that that to be honest really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy to be honest to be, to be truth tellers uh, so I am deeply concerned
2: if you like Johnny's regular podcasts think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Gould or buy him a coffee he loves coffee KO FI dot com, Slash Johnny Gould.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really a problem, is that we need to always, as Jews, and we always, we, we always have done is that we've always had a bird's eye perspective on our experience because we know that we're part of this ancient civilization and culture. We know that our experiences today are just modern iterations of things that have come before. And I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the wider Jewish experience. If we look to America specifically, there are many American Jews who have focused specifically on the American Jewish experience. I think also they've misunderstood it But they focus on that specific experience and they don't zoom out to look at the wider world. What we experienced in Britain with Corbyn, you know, the the total threat that Israel exists under, the different Jewish communities around the world that have been oppressed, um, even post-Holocaust, even post-Shoah. So it's really important that we never lose sight of our kind of universal Um, Jewish experience. And then we have to stand firm and say to non-Jewish people in the non-Jewish world that while we want allies, we're going to have boundaries. And those boundaries include not allowing the non-Jewish world to define Jewish identity or concept. The non-Jewish perceptions on Zionism are illegitimate. It's a Jewish concept created by Jews, for Jews, rooted in Jewish identity. It's really Zionism is one of the most important Jewish concept. So only Jews get to define it and we have to stand firm and we have to defend ourselves and say we're not going to allow you to make it something luxury because actually for us it's not. It is our movement of self-determination to return us to our indigenous land which we were ethnically cleansed from and then we spent the next 2,000 years experiencing multiple genocides, ethnic cleansings, enslavements, legal oppressions. This is not luxury, this is our lives.
1: But wouldn't you let Balfour and Churchill into that Zionist discussion? What about Colonel Richard Kemp? Let's define what he said. He said, in no way am I a uh, Christian Zionist. Instead, I am a Zionist who's a Christian. And so his uh, values are less ideological and more pure. He does all he can to defend our values. And he recognises his English stroke British values are those of Jewish people, actually, not just Israelis, but Jewish people, too.
0: I think it's about understanding the lanes that we're in. You know, Colonel Richard Parker and other people, it's, you know, they're allies and they're supporting us. They're not necessarily going to speak over us. They're not necessarily going to speak for us. And actually, if they're kind of uh, parroting the same lines that we are, then, then there's no problem, right? Because they're taking their lead from us. And we should be having conversations with non-Jewish people and we should, you know, include them in conversations. But that doesn't mean we're going to allow non-Jewish people or the non-Jewish world, because really we're talking to something bigger than individuals to define Jewish concepts. You know, our allies will be taking their lead from us. They will say, OK, what do the Jewish people think about this? If I'm going to support the Jewish people, I need to understand what their perspective is, what they say. And then I will support them by uplifting that argument as opposed to speaking over them and defining it in in my own way.
1: Thank you. On the subject of American Jewish experience, uh, I spoke to Ambassador Michael Oren about the mystery of American Jewry and what it all means over many, many generations of great success, which is now beginning to look under the most existential threat, I think, since the 1920s and 30s in America. Sure. And. He said that many Americans, not Canadians, but Americans, believe that there are two promised lands. There are the ones in Israel and there is the one in the United States, and that they really believe that. And he said that American Jewry is looking on in admiration at the British Jewish community who have come together to fight in a unified form. Against the threats of Jeremy Corbyn, against the threats of the media like the BBC. And he says, with J Street and anti Zionism in America growing, he says that that is, of course, an issue. But then we look back to this idea that something that we don't have in Britain, which is a stake in the launch of the nation the idea that there is Hebrew written on the Yale University crest that even some of the founding fathers considered using Hebrew as the language uh, of the original American state. Such was their ideology about about a promised land. So, uh, you know, we have to sort of look at America as a slightly different case. And of course, they are the world's biggest diaspora by a country mile. You can't even use the word diaspora in the same sentence with American Jews because they don't believe they're living in exile. Uh, America, I, they get insulted, Johnny. I, I never use it in the connection with, with 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 U.S. Jews. You can use it with Canadian Jews, but not with American Jews. You sound and, a bit like a Mormon there, Michael, about how America is the uh, the, the 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 state of greatness uh, of the Messiah. Yes, there's the, it, it is deeply ingrained in the American Jewish worldview. <laughs> this is our promised land. Yes, there's another promised land, but our, our promised land, we are not in exile in America. They're very adamant about this, and it's a point that that Israelis don't often understand, especially when they go and speak to American Jewish audience, they'll refer to them as the Diaspora and they'll be insulted by it. Uh, So be aware of that. So very, very different. And the model of Diaspora is also different in the United States. There's no official church as it is in in the UK. Um, And uh, the sense that uh, American Jews are Americans first. I have
0: a different perspective on America. I don't believe the American Jewish experience is exceptional at all. I think that they have had... You and Chabad, modern, by
1: the way, you and Chabad think that.
0: Right. Um, a modern and maybe more extreme version, but a version of, of what other Jewish, experience, other Jewish communities have experienced, namely the French, even the British, the German particularly during the 19th century. And I think that there is an American Jewish myth Rather than there being American Jewish Jewish exceptionalism, there's an American Jewish myth. And this is the myth that the American Jews made it. They never made it. There was always Jew hatred. They were always um, expected to um, acquiesce to the demands of the non-Jewish world, as were the Jews of France, as were the Jews of Germany. They were never really allowed to be openly... Um, proudly Jewish, they were allowed to be proudly Jewish, but only in a way that fit with the American dream. It was everything about you know the Jewish experience in America has to contribute to the idea of the American dream and immigrants coming over, refugees coming over, and building these lives. And I think that we have to really move away from this idea. It's not exceptional at all. If you if you if people know history and we as Jews really should know our history because I said we have to zoom out and have that perspective on our experiences. The American Jews have experienced versions of what other people have experienced. As I said, the French, the German, absolutely. The dream is ending now, it certainly seems, but we have to understand it was just a dream. It never really existed. Yes, there was a period where, you know, Jews were able to prosper and Jews were able to kind of move and, and um move through society, have, have social mobility. But again, it was still within non-Jewish frameworks. It was still within, okay, you can do this, but if you shed your identity, if you stop being a nation, if you become just a religion, if you stop talking about your experiences, and if you allow us to really appropriate little aspects of Jewish culture, then reflect it back to you, which has reduced American Jewish culture to a smoked salmon bagel on a punchline. So when a British Jew says I'm a cultural Jew, what they really mean is I am a Jew that doesn't necessarily believe in God, but I'm still doing the things that, you know, I'm lighting my Shabbat candles, I'm, you know... Living a Jewish life, in America, what it means is that they're parroting this non-Jewish perspective on Jewish culture, which is bagels, which is smoked salmon, which is funny Jews. That's not Jewish culture. They have reduced us to that. And we have to understand that and understand the American Jewish experience in its reality, not in terms of the dream, because that dream doesn't really exist anymore.
1: Let me ask you about comedy and Larry David. I mean, he really is leading a Jewish life on screen i mean he he does he's secular and he says he doesn't believe in God, he actually leaves almost nothing to the imagination about his life. He has a reform community, plays golf with the rabbi, but he uses Yiddish all the time. He blew the chauffeur as a cry out against a mob, against the Ku Klux Klan, banging at his door, blowing a chauffeur and waking up Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, all the principal characters are Jewish. All his arguments with Leon are based upon Jewish arguments and him being another minority. Um, Is that smoked salmon bagel culture or is that a little bit more uh, proud, actually?
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, it's not It's not that every example of Jewish representation is, is problematic. And, you know, Larry David isn't necessarily problematic, and he's a very proud Jew. But again, I think it's really showing a an image of Jewish culture which fits American culture. And if we look at other forms of representation, there was a show called New Girl, there was a character called Schmidt that male, that Jewish man was the victim of, or, or rather experienced lots of anti-Jewish comments. But again, all laced in the very like funny Jewishness as a source of humor. We have glee, it's the same thing. You know, so many Jewish, so much Jewish representation is harmful. And a lot of people in Hollywood have written about this. And they said that, you know, while Jews were actively involved in the founding of Hollywood, while they didn't run it they were or you know they were involved in it absolutely but they were they took part in what they call ethnicity scrubbing because they wanted to be palatable so this is what it is because actually to be a jew is to be specific to say that we're a nation we're a people we have an indigenous land and while yes we're american or british or french or whatever we're also a people that has connected to another land but that's not palatable. That's not palatable to the non-Jewish world. So we have to kind of show one aspect of it. And that doesn't mean every manifestation of, of those aspects aren't, aren't proud, but certainly we have to be picking it apart. I mean, Woody Allen, as an example, Seth Rogen, these are, are Jewish men whose depictions are not proud at all. They're They're quite shameful, actually, yeah, in are. many ways.
1: Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. This is the podcast for this kind of uh, communication, I must tell you. Um, now, can we unpack that terrible word privilege? Now, I used to love that word. Yeah. You know, I used to be the, you know, the, 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 the word on my gold credit card. And <laughs> it's, now it's been appropriated to being something so horrible, white privilege, Jewish privilege, punching up.
0: I mean, for me, privilege as a concept is not inherently problematic, right? We do have different experiences as we move through the world. That's that's true. Privilege for me has become, whether it was intended to be used in this way or not, it has become something which is deemed an immovable status. You're either privileged or you're oppressed. And the world does not work that way. You know, I... Have, have privilege in certain ways. I'm a man, I have light skin, I'm from the West, I have a British passport, but at the same time I'm Jewish and gay. So we as individuals are moving through the world and the advantage and disadvantage that we may have which are these are terms that i prefer to use they're constantly changing based on the concept on the context it's not an immovable status it's not that you're either privileged or oppressed that's not the way the world works things are complicated there's a huge amount of nuance and we're not going to deny reality because as i said i do think that we move through the world in different ways and there's nothing wrong with that it's just reality because we experience things differently and some of them may give us advantage and some of them may give us disadvantage but it's about you know, having that conversation, you know, my partner, for example, my partner is a white South African, many people would deem him to be um, very privileged as a white South African, he grew up in poverty in South Africa, he also has a South African passport, and he has been turned down from jobs, because he has a South African passport, and because people have said to him, you would have got the job if you were British or American. So having a Western passport gives us an advantage over someone like him, even though he may be considered to be privileged or advantaged. It's about understanding the new and complexity and so much of the rhetoric you know in the world today completely destroys that it's a false dichotomy it's either one thing or another it's not the way the world works
1: indeed and the elephant in the room now i discussed this with chen mazig who is of course uh, referenced in your book with a whole chapter is that being gay and jewish means you're not often accepted in lgbtq (laughs) Uh, communities.
2: So, uh, pinkwashing is is not what you what happened when you put a red sock with uh, white uh, uh, sheets in, uh, <laughs> in the in the laundry. Yeah, that's that's a different uh, pinkwashing. The, the term pinkwashing started. Uh, I think it it was used before to to call out breast cancer uh, movement on products to put a, a pink uh, ribbon on products to say they're you know supporting fighting uh, uh, breast cancer, but in honesty they didn't. Give much, you know, and that that was uh, the term was used for it. And then Judith Butler, Butler, I think she's a historian from New York. She started using the term to to describe how Israel is uh, using its LGBTQ community to uh, to whitewash or pinkwash uh, the the crimes that that we are committing. Um, or the atrocities that we're allegedly <laughs> committing um, which is ridiculous and, and I think, you know, that now that we are talking about pinkwashing uh, in, in, around the world people are saying um, that we should not speak about the Israeli LGBTQ community because we there's still a conflict with the Palestinians that um, we shouldn't be yeah, it's, it's insane and, and that we shouldn't be celebrated we shouldn't be discussed as long as there's a conflict and it's uh, it's, you know, as I said before it's really part of this whole trend and agenda that is very clear, you know, we, we need to turn Israel into into a pariah state, and everything Israel does, anything and everything, is uh, uh, is wrong. It's bad. We can't talk about now. They're saying there's vegan washing that Israel is saying that they're very vegan, but it's not. Uh, but it's to cover up for the atrocities. And there was an article once about how many of the Nazis were also vegan, and that's why Israelis are vegan because we are, we are so you know trying to separate between the crimes. The problem is that people are actually falling into it and, and believing it. And I think that's, um, uh, it's really dangerous.
1: Intersectional racism from quotes, the community of good. This black and white, you're one thing or the other. You're either privileged or oppressed. You lot are privileged and white, clear off.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's really it. And actually, to be honest, people are being told you are white, therefore you're privileged, or rather you're white, therefore you're guilty, which is really a, a secular form of original sin. But back to what you said about the LGBTQ plus community, absolutely, I don't feel comfortable in in LGBT, in specific LGBTQ plus spaces as a proud Jewish Zionist. If I was willing to discard my Zionism to be a palatable Jew, a good Jew, then they would accept me, but I'm not gonna do that because I'm going to be an authentic Jew, which means understanding our indigenous connection to the land of Israel. And absolutely, you know, it's kind of ironic because people in the LGBTQ plus community say that Palestine is an LGBTQ plus issue. And actually, an article came out today that said the PA bans LGBTQ activities in West Bank as an insult to Palestinian traditions. And absolutely, they're right. Palestine is an LGBTQ plus issue. But what they should be doing is spending time advocating for LGBTQ plus Palestinians as opposed to demonizing Israel or LGBTQ plus Jewish Zionists. But minorities are not exempt from racism. LGBTQ plus people Black people, Asian people, any type of minority, Jewish people, of course, no minority is immune to prejudice. So what we're seeing here is prejudice from a minority community.
1: Ben, I'm delighted you went early with the fact that anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem, it's a non-Jewish problem, and the demonization of Jews externally runs entirely parallel to who we are. You know, when I'm doing certain things, I don't know, davening the Elenu or listening to the immense wisdom of my rabbi, I'm thinking, you know, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the hate fest outside. Absolutely nothing.
0: It's kind of amazing. I am very lucky to teach classes on Jewish studies and the Holocaust and whenever, you know, in the class on the Holocaust, for example, I'm telling these students, particularly non-Jewish students, all of the horrendous things that were done to the Jews and were said about the Jews. And I'm standing there as a proud Jew and I'm wearing my kippah. And I say to them, even for me, and this is something that I teach about, I write about, it's so weird because there's a total disconnect. It is their perceptions of us have absolutely nothing to do with our reality. And that is why we have to have pride, because sometimes we absorb their perceptions of our identities and then we internalize their anti-Jewishness, which I can tell you is the subject of my next book that will be with that will be released in October of 2022 because we do we absorb their perceptions of ourselves we have to say no this is your idea this is your perception it is false it is a libel it's a fantasy and it has nothing to do with our reality
1: Now, obviously, you've been writing and writing and turning these ideas over and making them more and more accessible. I'm sure you turn sentences over to make them even sharper. I can see that in certain sentences along the way. And congratulations on unpacking so many ideas. Uh, I must contest one thing with you. I challenge you to identify who exactly is an Ashkenazi and who is a Sephardi, because... Four out of five times, you know, you you get it right. There's always 20% of the audience, he's not Ashkenazi, He's he's got black hair. Of course he has, you know, or she. I mean, yeah, you know, the, the Ashkenazi is not also culturally dominant at all. It's a perception you might feel in certain parts of the world and in the suburbs of London and across North America, for example. But it's no longer the situation in central London. Uh, where uh, the v- vast majority of kids in my class at school, they are Sephardim. There's no question about that. Nor is it in the vibrant synagogues where the Ashkenazi right has been subsumed by the Israeli Sephardi pronunciation. And so it goes on. I can't get a decent lochon and kneedlach soup anywhere around here. I can get falafel, though. I think.
0: I think that these different cultures are important, right? Ashkenazi, I'm My family were Ashkenazi, and I'm very proud of that fact. They lived in the shtetls in Eastern Europe, and they had a distinct culture. The Sephardic Jews, they also had a distinct culture. But importantly, these distinct cultures were iterations of the original culture. So maybe actually the word distinct is not, is not really suitable. It, they had a culture. They had a culture of their own that was an iteration of what all of us were doing collectively in the land of Israel. Um, and absolutely, there has been a move by some people in our own community to paint Ashkenazi Jews as kind of the white people of the Jewish community, which is so absurd because even physically, you know, it's my awful, brother. ben It's a kind of my racism. brother. Yeah, I mean, my brother, it's definitely anti Jewishness. My brother is an Ashkenazi Jew, or our family is Ashkenazi. He's my full brother. He does not pass as white. He gets profiled at airports. He looks like he's from the Middle East, and I look like me, right? So it's so binary again. What we see is this really um, ignorant binary that that is not rooted in intellect and is most certainly not rooted in reality imposed onto us we should talk about the different experiences for example the sephardic jews experienced the spanish and portuguese inquisitions that's their story and we should absolutely talk about it but we shouldn't separate we shouldn't kind of impose this identity politics onto us you know isaac de castro who i interview in the book is mixed sephardic and ashkenazi he is the founder of the new zionist congress jewish on campus and he says to me the Spanish Inquisition is my story, but it's also your story because we're yeah. Jews and we're one family. So I think it's important to talk about Jewish diversity, but we mustn't allow that to then separate us. It's just to understand our diversity and celebrate that.
1: I've been trying to uh, get that across in this podcast series. I interviewed the great Lynn Julius as well about uh, uprooted 3000 years of um Uh, History and culture completely disappeared overnight.
3: I think these countries have to acknowledge the truth, the historical truth, that they kicked out their Jews. You can't blame the Jews themselves for their own exodus. Um, You know, you have to take responsibility, As, as the Germans did, you know, after the war. They said, mea culpa, we did it, we we created this problem you know we we are the you know we are the authors of this tragedy and we apologize and and here's some compensation and and you know here's some recognition and of course that's that would never ever you know be adequate but it's a start at least they have acknowledged responsibility and this hasn't happened with the arab countries You know, never have we heard an Arab country actually, you know, I mean, I'm talking about governments. No government has actually apologized for the mass exodus of their Jewish citizens. You do occasionally hear a brave individual saying, you know, like it happened with a Uh, an Iraqi TV presenter not so long ago, and he actually went public and said, oh, we apologise for what we've done. But you won't hear an Arab government. They're too busy either denying that it's happened or blaming the Zionists for it or blaming the Jews themselves uh, or saying that the Jews left of their own free will.
1: And, you know, to my shame, I didn't know about the Farahud uh, before I started yeah. researching and, you know, it's exactly the same as the pogroms it just had a different name and it was yes. a 1500 bars in another direction. Uh, we are exactly the same. And, you know, that's one thing that I absolutely hate. I hate intercommunal prejudice between Jewish people. I absolutely yeah. hate it. I find it repugnant. I, I can't bear it. And I pick people up all the time on it. I don't like Ashkenazi this safari that I hate it. I don't like all her foods better than your food and all this. I hate it so much because actually I could eat eat both of them, to be honest, within an hour of each other.
0: And they're great, right? And it's, and it is about, you know, and I, I want to learn about the Mizrahi experience. I want to learn about the Ferhud because it's important and it's our story as Jews and you're absolutely right. People always say to me, what was the one thing you learned from your interviews? The one thing that I learned was that no matter where the Jews were, whether it was in Ethiopia or England or Algeria or America, we were having versions of the same story and we were celebrating versions of the same culture. That's really important. We're a nation, we're a people and all of the cultures that sprang out you know, after our ethnic cleansing from the land of Israel, where iterations were were different manifestations of what was there originally, what we were all doing together. So we have to celebrate diversity, but not allow it to divide us.
1: Ben, you define Soviet anti-Semitism in the book excellently, which is, of course, where Jeremy Corbyn's form of anti-Zionism was incubated and invented, The basic premise is that you replace Jewish with Zionist and therefore attack Jews for their, uh, you know, you can't attack Jews for their religion anymore, slightly less acceptable after the Holocaust, but growing. But it can be replaced with attacking Israel instead, the Jewish homeland.
0: Absolutely. Israel is treated as the collective Jew. It's the Jew among nations. And yeah, after the Shoah, after the Holocaust, you couldn't, persecute Jews racially, because remember, the Holocaust was a racial form of Jew hate. You couldn't persecute Jews religiously, because that wasn't really in vogue anymore. So what were you going to do? You were going to select a country, which is a much easier target, and you're going to reframe that country and you know we talked previously about jewish reality bearing no resemblance to the tropes and libels that are said about jews it's the same with israel the things that were said about israel by the new left in europe by the soviet union and by the arab states had absolutely no resemblance to it they said that you know one of the quotes is that africa is in a white stranglehold south africa at the bottom and israel at the top and they tried to purposely paint it, frame it as a white, super, a white supremacist, imperialist, cult, colonist state. That was propaganda. It's not true. Israel is not a white state. It's a Jewish state in our indigenous homeland, the land of Israel. And why do people hate Israel? Well, they hate Israel because it's Jewish. And listen, we can have conversations about Israeli policy, but people who hate Israel are not talking about policy. They hate Israel. They hate its inherent characteristics. And what is that characteristic? It's Jewishness.
1: As Michael Oren said to me, you know, um, Israel makes mistakes. Every sovereign state makes mistakes. But that does not mean that uh, they don't have a right to their sovereignty, which is effectively what uh, anti-Zionism promotes or wants, the destruction of the state of Israel. And um, you discuss the libels against Jews over the century, the blood libel, the economic libel, that awful one about Israel harvesting organs, And that one proving that they're rehashing and reinventing old tropes. Oh, yes, that blood libel. Look, it's still existing in the 21st century in Israel now because they've got hospitals and that's what they can do. It's terrible.
0: Absolutely. And I think that is why learning our history is so important, because like we said, it's very easy to focus on our own experience. Right. It's very easy to focus on our own context. But we have to zoom out and we have to see the threads that connect each part of our history, the positives and the negatives. And each of these libels, you know, our fantasies are rooted in ideas of Jews that have existed for 2000 years. You know, I assigned an essay for my students in my last Jewish studies class. And I said, pick one of the most significant moments of Jewish history and explain why. And there was a couple of students who picked the blaming of um, the blaming on Jews the mur- for the murder of Jesus. Because they said that was what started or, or really embedded these ideas that Jews are evil, Jews are perverse. And all of these different libels sprang out partly from that. They weren't all directed to that, but it certainly played a role. And I thought it was really interesting because Jews today who are trying to understand their experience, they're not going to get very far if they don't start from history. They have to go back and learn the context
1: Indeed, because uh, all history repeats itself. I once asked a rabbi uh, why, for example, Yom Ha'atzma'ut is not a Jewish festival, and uh, he gave the simple answer that um, all history has happened before, so it's um, a, a rekindling. I also asked him why there wasn't a reference to the Holocaust in in Pesach, for example, at the Haggadah. You know, that might be a, refer- a reference. Uh, but indeed, again, he just said that all history repeats itself. Yeah. Uh, it's just got new manifestations, new nations, new definitions. Absolutely. And, and so you've spoken to some extraordinary people from our um, generation, Rachel Riley of Countdown, and other things. Chen <laughs> uh, yes. uh, Ashaga Araro, Isaac DeCastro, you mentioned Elisheva Sean, Eliyahu Lan, Amy Albertson. Um, how did you come to talk to those people? What framed those discussions? You know, to answer this, we really have to kind of
0: circle back, which is very much Zoom speak, right? Circle back to the conversation we had at the beginning about the framework that I approached this with was my LGBTQ plus identity, my LGBTQ plus journey to pride. And one of the things that people criticise about the LGBTQ plus movement is that it doesn't really celebrate diversity. They celebrate a specific type of gay person. And I wanted to say, listen, while we're one people, we do come in different shapes and sizes. We come from different places. We have slightly different experiences. And I really wanted to represent that because I feel close to the Mizrahi, Betty Israel, Ashkenazi, and Sephardic experience. They're my stories too. And I wanted to share those. I wanted to educate people. And I really thought about someone growing up in Glasgow. And, you know, I'm like, would they have heard of the Farhud, for example? So it was an opportunity to educate and give a different experience because our community is not perfect and we have to grow and develop. And I wanted to give a voice to Elisheva Sean, for example, who is a black Jew, or Amy Albertson, who is an Asian American Jew, because that is what our people look like. And those people are important parts of our, or rather, those individuals are important parts of our peoplehood. And they strengthen it. And the beauty of our diversity strengthens it. So it was really just an educational perspective. And also, listen, I'm writing a book about Jewish identity. I'm a Jew from Glasgow. I have a very specific framework, I have a very specific context, which isn't the context of everyone. So I wanted to showcase different ideas because, again, this is practical work. It's not just theory. It's not just my ideas. It's my ideas rooted in history and kind of wrapped up in other people's perspectives also.
1: Now, you'll be delighted to hear that there is an undercurrent of change among even the most mainstream Orthodox Jewish communities, the inclusion of women in certain parts of the service... For example, the prayer for the state of Israel. I can see why they've chosen that, because it's not in the ancient rite. It is a modern manifestation. And also, I'm delighted to say that uh, the Revitson, you know, also addresses the community with her great wisdom, female wisdom. And we appreciate it, and the shul listens. It's quiet. It's that kind of place. It's a good place to learn. And, of course, there's a federal nature To orthodox synagogues, the rabbi of the community is in charge. Okay, so he might have to answer to a higher uh, caller, an intermediary between him and Hashem with uh, things from time to time, like for example the chief rabbi, but let me ask you, do you think we might see recognition of gay marriage, perhaps that's a bit too far, but maybe a civil partnership in an orthodox shul, maybe not under a chuppah, but On the Bimmer, for example, you know, as communities get larger, I go to, uh, my my kids go to a Jewish school. Everyone is heterosexual for now in there, you know, with mother and father. But you never know what the sexualities are between the men and women. We just don't know. At some point, very soon, there will be a daddy and daddy rock up at the school. And uh, I don't think it will challenge people as much as... predictions might fear.
0: yeah and i think i think the important thing to understand about jewishness and judaism is that we have evolved constantly for thousands of years there is this notion that we stayed the same and and there's now people wanting to change things it's not true there has always been debate there's always been discussion look at the talmud it was just people arguing back and forth which is so incredible this intellectual kind of curiosity that exists in our people so absolutely i think it's possible I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I think we could start to see um, versions of things. We could start to see some kind of, you know, blessings, whether they count it as a marriage or not. Who's to say? But I think the important thing is to say that we do evolve. We have evolved and we still have further to evolve. So I don't think it's out of the question. I think it's just about openness. And that's one of the things that I take great pride in you know, that I'm a gay Jew and I'm, you know, I started this modern Jewish pride movement. I'm helping lead it. And I'm a gay Jew and I'm very open about my sexuality. And I'm showing people that my sexual orientation does not challenge my Jewishness. I think there's some people who don't necessarily understand how you can be both. And that's okay because not everyone has experience or or knowledge. But what I'm doing is showing actually you can be a proud Jew, you can be a super proud Jew and still be a gay man and those identities can coexist without necessarily, you know, having them being
1: challenged by one another. So Ben, if that does happen, where does it consolidate your own Judaism with your sexuality? Now, if you could marry or be recognized by the Orthodox Jewish community, would that put more emphasis on you finding a Jewish partner to marry or be part of a civil partnership with. So in finality, where does the politics of LGBTQ end and your Jewish belief, your Jewish identity, trump it all together? I think that's a really interesting
0: question. And I am in a relationship with a non-Jewish person. So our union, marriage, whatever it would be, wouldn't be recognized anyway. And I think for me, that isn't necessarily a conversation that is particularly relevant because I'm not with someone who is Jewish. Um, If I was, it might make a difference. And I think, yeah, of course you want to be recognized by your community. You want your relationship to be recognized by your community. But for me, um, because my partner isn't Jewish, it's not really much of a concern although i do think it's still important i guess what i'm saying is it's not concern for me personally but that would be something that i would celebrate for other lgbtq plus jews and their partners and i think it's not about you know one ending and one beginning it's about both of these things coexisting inside me and that's the thing you know it's not that half of me is jewish and half of me is gay it's that i'm a gay jew and both of these um both of these aspects of my identity coexist together and that was why pride was so important to me because they helped me find um peace and they helped me marry them because i was able to you know kind of learn use one to learn about the other and vice versa and i think that's really amazing for me and i think that is a lesson for people and other lgbtq plus jews but in terms of marrying in an orthodox synagogue that wouldn't be something that'd be possible for me regardless so you know if we were to get married i would love to have a jewish blessing but i guess it would be in a liberal synagogue um who would kind of accept the relationship
1: between me and my non-jewish partner shuls worked best when people married age 23 and married a person of the opposite sex but of course now single people male female uh, straight or gay etc uh, are marrying in their 30s mm-hmm. even like me in their forties, goodness me. Um, And it's quite difficult to engage single people in a synagogue on a Shabbat morning if you're not part of a family unit. You know, it wasn't a very cool place for me to be. The outreach presents itself with challenges, which is why they have singles Friday nights. You know, this is kind of how it is. Um, We have to accommodate a wider set of choices in society and trends actually even if they're not choices
0: yeah and also It again, is rooted in the idea that we have always evolved. It's not like there has been a constant for 4,000 years and now people are being asked to evolve. That's just not true. There were different forms of Jewishness and Judaism and identity forming all the time, you know, throughout our long, long history. So actually this is another iteration and for sure it's gonna challenge people like the changes 2,000 years ago challenged people, but people are gonna do what they're gonna do and they're going to try and maintain their connections, their Jewish identity. And that's the most important thing. We don't need to agree with each other. Again, look at, let's look at the Talmud. It was quarrelling and debate and dialogue and not necessarily seeing eye to eye. That's okay. We're allowed to exist in conflict. But the most important thing is that we come from a place of love of, and that love being for our Jewishness and our commitment to our Jewishness. So I'm sure that you might have a different Jewish um, life than I do. doesn't make yours or mine more or less valid and they can coexist in the same space without them challenging one another.
1: Definitely, I agree with that. Now, um, do you think Judaism should continually act as a buffer against societal change? Now, this is a challenge to your overall sort of ideas here. So, Bechol Dor in every generation could also mean the threat to Jewish values from within. So, we're seeing J Street in the United States as a a, a sort of mass assimilation tool as well as a form of anti-zionism my question here ben is if we make too many fundamental changes to jewish practice even things which you hold sacred which are maybe in breach of ancient rites there is an existential risk to judaism how far do we push the envelope these are very important questions as we evolve into the 22nd century as well
0: I think that evolution is great as long as it doesn't stray too far. And and we will all have different perceptions of what that means, right? But we have three main tenets, I believe, of Jewishness. Land, Torah, God. Um, The land is, you know, that's our expressions through Zionism. I don't even necessarily think you need to believe in God necessarily to understand the importance of God and Hashem and Elohim. You know, that is a part of what it means to be a Jew as a collective. And then Torah is our instructions and it's our history. So I think that we can evolve and we should evolve. And like the rabbis did, we should debate we should be picking apart these sentences and these stories and these texts and we should be debating them but to debate them we have to come from a place of knowledge right we cannot just be rocking up and not having done the work not having studied to get us to that point so I believe that there will be debate but yeah we shouldn't be changing beyond recognition we can't if you for example disregard the Jewish connection to, in, to the land of Israel if you discard our indigeneity Then you have to ask at some point, do you maintain your Jewishness? And listen, while I don't necessarily have a relationship with God, I am happy for other Jews too. I support them in their relationship with God. I understand the importance of God or the concept of God as a collective. So that's quite different. It's it's quite different from being, you know, a non-believer to an anti-believer, just like it's a difference between being a non-Zionist and an anti-Zionist. If a Jew doesn't necessarily feel a strong connection to the state of Israel, but recognizes it's our homeland, then fine, whatever, we're not gonna force them. But you cannot be anti, because that means you're being anti one of the fundamental tenets of Jewish life. So while yes, we should be evolving and growing, it has to be within a certain framework and boundary. We as individuals cannot just make things up as we go along. There is a three, 4,000 year old civilization that is informing the decisions that we should be making. We are specific. And I've, I say this in my second book, which I know is going to be controversial. I do have dual loyalty. I have loyalty to Britain because I'm a British person and I have loyalty to the state of Israel and the land of Israel. And in no other circumstances is that considered to be controversial. A British Indian person will have loyalty and a connection towards India and Britain. But we are forced to give up our identity. We're forced to universalize. No, we're specific and we should celebrate our specificity. We can, shouldn't acquiesce to their demands.
1: Can you use another term, Dual loyalty. Or are you just thinking, sod it? No, I'm proud of yeah, it. I'm, I'm, think, I'm going I to use. Care. I'm going to use that word that they use against us, and I'm going to reclaim yeah. it.
0: I don't care. I really, I genuinely don't care about their narratives, and I'm not going to allow their narratives to inform our identity. I'm just not because I really don't care. It's irrelevant. You know, you say we have Jew loyalty. I do have Jew loyalty, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I throw it back in your face to say, are you saying that to a, an American, me, you know, an American Mexican or a British Indian or whatever? No, you're not. They're allowed to have a connection and celebrate their indigenous culture and land, but we're not. Yeah, the reason for that is because you hate Jews. So, like, sorry, you don't get to do this. And we're not going to acquiesce, because what that does is we have to say, no, 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 we don't have Jew loyalty. We're British, we're British, we're British. I am British and I I love Britain, but I'm also a Jew. And that's equally as important to me. Maybe even more, actually, you know, let's be honest, even more so. So I'm not going to throw one identity away just to be accepted, just as I'm not going to, you know, necessarily abandon my Britishness. We have to create our own boundaries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know people are going to be uncomfortable with it because it is a term that makes people uncomfortable with. But yeah, my attitude is kind of sod that. I don't care. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Ben, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, is available now on Amazon or wherever you like to buy your books.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Help support my work with a one-off donation. It's always gratefully received and noticed. And you could make a monthly contribution as I continue to generate stories and podcasts. There's a few ways of doing it. Go to paypal.me slash jonathanlgould, that's paypal.me slash jonathanlgould, or support me at patreon.com slash Gould. or drop me a fiver for a push coffee at ko-fi.com slash Gould. Johnny Gould's Jewish State
2: is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy.